Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves, world champions. Braves in baseball talk. Straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios on a Sunday as we wrap up a week that was, I'd say eventful is one way to put it, but uh, profitable might be the best way to put it for the Atlanta Braves. Many things were going right. Many of them can be found in the run column over the last few games for the Braves as they took on this Colorado Rockies team. And really, they just bashed the Colorado Rockies into submission in a four-game series. The final tally, not just Sunday, which was a very nice day, 14-6 to your final score, so that I don't bury the lead for what we're doing here today. But big picture in this series, 40-12. to The Braves outscored the Rockies. They roughed up their starters. They further roughed up the bullpen. It was a very good series for the Braves offense, a get-right series, you might want to call it. And it kind of started in Detroit, I feel like, for this Braves team as far as some things starting to get right. But we had some lineup shuffling going on. We have the resurgence of Eddie Rosario, which has been a story all month long. That continues to make front-page news on Sunday. And how about Michael Harris the second? There were people that were kind of wondering, how long can you go with Michael Harris in center field if he's not going to hit like the rookie of the year he was a year ago? And I think the answer to that for me was, you got to be patient. The results are going to start coming because the work has been there and the difference in the batted balls, you could just kind of tell that he just felt like he was on the edge of that breakthrough. And I would say he has not only broken through, he has just kicked that door down. And he's gone back just to make sure they didn't leave anything behind because he was collecting more base hits on this Sunday afternoon on Father's Day. He went 5-for-5. Five five. We'll talk all about Michael Harris, what he's been doing, that lineup switch that was Ozzie Albies and Matt Olson basically swapping places. Then you got that guy at the top of the order, MVP of the National League, I think right now, if you're, the season were to stop today, or the and we hope that doesn't happen, but if the voting were to take place tomorrow, Ron Lacuna Jr. has just continued to put on a show. That was more apparent in this past week as well as he continued to make a little bit of history on his pace and on his track to what could be not just the best season of his career, but maybe the best season that we have seen all around from a speed and power perspective in baseball history. So how does that sound? That's what's going on in the Braves lineup right now. And a lot of other guys have been chipping in as well. But overall, you just wanted to see this club start to get itself right again, to beat the teams that you're supposed to beat in series. Things didn't go well in Detroit when this week started. There was a game that the Braves very easily should have won, did not. The Tigers came back. Then you had to kind of skin your teeth. Find out a doubleheader sweep against the Tigers, but hey, a series win is a series win. Then you want to come home and really get healthy and get rolling against the Colorado Rockies, and I think that might be putting it lightly. Four consecutive games in which the Braves' offense showed up and put up runs, and the Braves were able to roll and keep this roll going to a six-game winning streak at this point. Best record in the National League. I believe most runs scored in the National League now with their 14 more on Sunday. They surpassed the Los Angeles Dodgers. Only the Tampa Bay Rays and Texas Rangers have scored more runs than the Braves, which might just tell you that's why only the Texas Rangers, well, excuse me, the Tampa Bay Rays and then the Texas Rangers, in that order, have a better record this year than do the Atlanta Braves. So 
A lot of good things happening, a lot of them offensively for the Braves. The pitching staff, though, there were some stories as well that we're going to get into uh, as we roll on on this show because I feel like we have seen both some guys stepping into roles that they need to in the form of A.J. Smith-Shawver, the 20-year-old for the Atlanta Braves who is now in rotation for them. We have also gotten some, a little bit of news about Kyle Wright and about Max Fried and their possible returns here in the second half. Not going to be happening soon, but you want to hear some good news, and we heard a little bit of that. And, of course, um, just the general bullpen success, despite the fact that you lost arguably your best reliever in Jesse Chavez to an injury in Detroit this week. We're going to talk about that as well here on this edition of From the Diamond. So a whole bunch of stuff to get to. Before I give you a checklist of everything that's going to happen over the next two hours, let me just remind you, if you enjoy From the Diamond and might have happened to have missed any of it or just want to make sure you catch every bit of it, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. You can also find it on the Odyssey app. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Grant McCauley there. I'm also at Grant McCauley on Instagram. The show is on Twitter, at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end, at From the Diamond on Instagram, and links to everything that you need, including liking the show on Facebook. You can find it from thediamond.com. Got a really great show lined up for you today. As I mentioned, I mean, when the Braves are winning, I feel like people are going to enjoy the show a whole lot more because we don't have to dissect what has gone wrong, who's not playing up to capabilities quite as much. It's, it's just the opportunity to kind of enjoy what we feel like is going to be who this team is more times than not. I mean, when you're sitting on the best record in your league, things are typically going your way. But the way that the Braves have done it this year, having to overcome inconsistencies, injuries, we talk about them every single week. It will be another conversation we have this week because, again, the Jesse Chavez loss is one that is notable, especially for this Braves bullpen, which is just kind of starting to get things rolling, which we've wanted to see for quite some time as well. Uh, but you're also going to hear from a couple of Atlanta Braves on this show. I caught up with Travis Darno, Braves catcher, celebrated a milestone with his 100th home run a couple of nights ago against Colorado. Got to chat with him a little bit about that and what it is that the Braves catchers do, and not just the catchers, but really the, the whole team that works behind the scenes with the catchers and with the starting pitchers to create game plans for each and every night. Because you might just think, all right, well, we look at a few charts, we see some tendencies of some hitters, and then we just kind of go out there and, as Ric Flair would say, we just call it in the ring. I'm not sure a lot of guys do that these days. In baseball in 2023, in modern sports, I don't think there's a whole lot of, we're just going to go out there and wing it and, and see you know, what's working on that night. Now, you have to make adjustments in the game, but how exactly does that game plan come together? What goes into that? Travis Darno was nice enough to share some of that with me. Uh, this week in a conversation I had with him at the ballpark on Saturday. You'll also hear from a Brave who owns one of the greatest moments in Braves franchise history, and I don't use that lightly. Tyler Matzik is not available to the Braves because of Tommy John surgery he underwent last October, but he is on the road back. He is throwing again. Got to catch up with him at the ballpark. Got to see him doing some long toss as well over the weekend. He is ramping things up. He's eight months removed now from that surgery. 12 to 14 month recovery time, though, and as you'll hear a little bit from him later, he's not trying to you know ramp up the expectations that he's walking through that door next week or anything like that. But some great progress being made for Tyler, who was an integral part of the Braves' bullpen success, particularly in 2021. I will never forget, and I don't know that I'll ever feel the same kind of electricity that I felt when he blew away the Los Angeles Dodgers in Game Six of the NLCS as the Braves were on their way to punching their ticket to the World Series. Every time I talk about it, I get goosebumps. It's one of those kind of moments. That's when you know you found something really good, and the Braves would like to have Tyler Matzik back in that bullpen doing some good stuff in the future. You'll hear my chat with him about how his rehab is coming along as he looks to return from Tommy John surgery as well. Also, with the Rockies in town, it gives you an opportunity to you know, see who might just happen to roll in with that team, and a familiar face, of course, is covering the Colorado Rockies these days on their television broadcast. Kelsey Wingert, who was a longtime Braves reporter here in Atlanta. I got to catch up with her and chat with 
her about how things are, are going, not just for the Rockies, but also in her career, her life, all the good things that are happening. You'll hear my conversation with Kelsey. She'll join the show a little bit later as well. But let's talk a little bit about the week that was for the Atlanta Braves. Because as I mentioned, this is kind of a get-right week. And it started with, you know, kind of on a down note, because you kind of felt like you know, rolling into Detroit, not too far removed from the series against the Oakland Athletics that the Braves surprisingly lost two out of three. As you try to make peace with a series like that, you certainly don't want to roll in and have another team on a long losing streak get right at your expense, and that's what happened in Oakland. The Tigers broke a nine-game losing streak as they beat the Braves in comeback fashion 6-5 to five in the opener of a three-game series. Then the Reigns came and washed game two away, and you rolled into a doubleheader. In that doubleheader, Spencer Strider got knocked around a little bit, and you started feeling like, okay, it looks like the Tigers are not playing around. They might take a series from the Braves, but credit the offense for finding the runs they needed to come back and not only win in Game 1, but also take the nightcap of that doubleheader and get out of town with a series victory. It may not sound like much. Like, why are we sitting here in the middle of June talking about you know, what a moral victory it is, if, if for lack of a better term, to get a win over the Detroit Tigers? But every single one of these wins, as we know, are important. Every one of them count. And you want to, as you look at the schedule, which is going to get a little bit tougher for the Braves as we roll on through June and obviously July, you got to take advantage of each and every day and each and every series to build what the Braves have built this year, which is not only a nice lead in the National League East, which, as we've seen a year ago, those kind of things can go away, but a, a consistent winning culture that the Braves have had over the past few years. Sometimes they don't find their way into all the winning that they want to do until the weather starts to heat up. But with the start they got off to this year, and despite the fact all these injuries have been thrown at them, they continue to find ways to win. And you know, beating a team like the Tigers, taking two out of three there, I think that parlayed into some momentum in this home series and then doing what they needed to do, showing up to win a game against the Rockies four nights in a row and being able to do that as well. So the Braves on a six-game win streak thanks to that doubleheader sweep and then the four-game sweep of the Colorado Rockies. And the offense has been front and center to this. I think that's been the big story of the week. I mean, we knew that the Braves' offense could be sudden. And how sudden can they be? Well, they've scored 66 runs in the first inning this year. That's tops in baseball. Didn't happen on Sunday. But they were busy doing it just about every other night this week, grabbing early leads. Now, sometimes the lights would go out a little bit for the offense at times, but I really feel like we're starting to see way more, you know, better situational hitting. The Braves' offense continuing to add on to leads, which is, of course, an important part of giving your starting pitcher a little bit more breathing room, giving your bullpen you know, the proper breathing room so that you can get the 27 outs you need to win that game. And the offense, they've come to play, especially over the past week. But we saw a little bit of a change after – what the, the sweep in Detroit. Because Matt Olson and Ozzie Albies, who had been batting second and fifth in the lineup respectively, those guys switched places. And Olson had, had, had been in the two spot for the first 68 games of the season and had provided, you know, when we talked about those first inning runs, quite a few of those. And he did it again on Saturday, I believe it was, with that grand slam home run or a couple of days ago. But that's a good way to get the attention of an opposing pitcher, an opposing team. Grand slam in the first inning. Olsen has nine home runs in the first inning. He's also driven in 20 runs in the first inning. Both of those totals lead Major League Baseball. Ronald Acuna Jr., meanwhile, has scored 23 runs in the first inning. That is tops in baseball, and Ronald also leads the National League in runs scored as well. So he continues to pile those up on pace for, I believe, 142 runs, if I'm not mistaken, in addition to the 35 homers, 70 steals, 100 runs batted in. 200 hits. I mean, there are a few things that Ronald's doing this year that are getting your attention, but we'll get to him a little bit later. But that, that lineup switch, it was born out of two things. I think that Matt had been kind of in a rut for a while 
after getting off to kind of a, a, a getting off to a night start for about three weeks, it really seemed like the swing and miss had come into his game way more than he wanted to. And he talked about some of that after Saturday's win when he hit the grand slam home run, and you know had moved down into that fifth spot of the order for a couple of days. And you're going to try to find the ways that you can to make the adjustments, but it's not like reinventing your swing. You know, he's not going to make some major change. It's going to make him look altogether different. And you're certainly not going to do it in the middle of a season. Those are just usually not the kind of changes you look to make at that point. It's little incremental things. And we'll see what he's able to do there. But I think taking a little bit of pressure off of him and just allowing him to be a run producer, which is what the Braves brought him in to do, fits fine. The order is a good place for that. Now, Ozzie Albies, who had been wearing out left-handed pitchers, so batting for the right side as a switch hitter, well, all of a sudden he's caught fire from the left side as well. Another home run on Sunday for left-hand hitting Ozzie Albies who has become and has been, really, but has just reestablished himself as one of the most powerful middle infielders in all of baseball. This guy can be an extra base hit machine, and that's what he's doing right now. He could also lead the National League in RBIs, which, by the way, not to bury the lead, Matt Olson currently doing that. Ozzy Albee's hot on his heels. So these are two guys that are integral parts of this Braves lineup and, and run producers. And getting, giving them the opportunity, I think, to give Ozzy some extra bats while he's swinging the bat well. Brian Snitker said that's something he'd been thinking about for a little while. And the, the twofold um, you know, result of that to allow Matt Olson to maybe settle in a little bit down in the order, I think that's nothing but a good thing as well. So that's one of the things going on in this Braves lineup. But there are so many other things that we're going to be talking about. Ronald Acuna Jr. is red hot. And, of course, Atlanta, as we approach the halfway point of the season, Braves are pretty much right where they want to be. A lot of baseball left to be played. I'll continue to throw that disclaimer out here every single week until we roll into August, September. There is some time to be played. But the Braves are the best record in the National League, doing a lot of things right and way more right than they're doing wrong these days. When we come back, we will dive into more Braves news and headlines from the past week. And we will do it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. More From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios on a very good Sunday for the Braves as they wrap up a weekend by capping it with a four-game sweep with the Colorado Rockies running their winning streak overall to six in a row thanks to a doubleheader sweep they grabbed in Detroit on the way out of town there and turning this from a week that began with some disappointment getting walked off by the Tigers to a week that uh, included six more victories for the Atlanta Braves by the time all was said and done. That, as they say, is a good week. If you win six out of seven all season long, I feel like you'll do some things that no baseball team has ever done before. But that's just my opinion, and that research, though, should check out. That math should check out uh, regardless. But as far as the Braves and how they have done it, I don't think it's a surprise to see that the offense is front and center all of this. And it, it begins with a lot of tone setting. And I tried to set the tone, set the table, if you will. It all starts with those first inning runs, I believe. And approaching their 2022 total, this is 162 games last year. The Braves scored 71 runs in the first inning. They've got 66 already. They just played game number 72 here in 2023. So I will tell you, it's been quite a switch for this Atlanta Braves team in terms of just turning on that offense immediately. It's, it's literally been like just coming in, turning on the lights. Hey, Braves are up 2 nothing. Well, that's a pretty crazy thing to look at, but it's been a trend for Atlanta, especially in the victories that they picked up this year again with the most in the National League as you take a look at the standings in the NL East. And we can talk about all the stats we want to, but – that really becomes a question is, what do those standings look like? And it has the Braves with a sizable lead over the second-place Marlins. Phillies have been playing a little bit better. The Braves are going to see the Phillies here in this next matchup as they begin the road trip after the off day on Monday. Braves roll into Philadelphia for a three-game series. That should be an interesting battle. Every one of those NL East you know, head-to-heads is going to be an important one. 
Those Braves will be looking to keep this offense going in a place that's known to really help some offenses out, and that would be Citizens Bank Park. But uh, putting that aside, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Matt Olson, leading baseball with first-inning runs batted in. He's got 20 of those. Austin Riley is second with 18. So when you look at the one, two, three in the order, it may not surprise you to see, well, if Olsen and Riley have the first and second most first-inning runs batted in in all of baseball, well, somebody must be scoring all these runs. Yeah, that guy's name's Ronald Lacuna Jr. He's got 23 of those. So as far as first-inning runs are concerned, the Braves are doing it better than anybody else in baseball, and it's really not particularly close. And one of the reasons why this offense is so good is that they hit the ball very hard. And I get a lot of feedback on Twitter. Much of it is good. It's fun. We have good baseball discourse throughout the year, but a lot of people will ask sometimes, well, or say, make a statement, a blanket statement, well, this team is home run or bust. I don't think that's true. They do hit a lot of home runs, but more so than hitting home runs, they go up with a plan. They swing at the first pitch more than any other team in baseball. Saw a stat today. I had not even pulled this up, but it was in the Bally Sports broadcast. Brandon Gordon and Tom Glavin were talking about it. But the Braves also swing 3-0 more than any other team in baseball. You want a case in point? How about Matt Olson's grand slam home run in the first inning of Saturday's game? The Braves are just not afraid to get a pitch they like and swing it at. Sometimes it's going to be that first pitch. And you would think a lot of times, okay, well, let's just not throw this team any first pitch fastballs. Well, you can do that. But they can also hit breaking balls. If you're going to throw it over the plate early on and the Braves have felt like that they've got a good plan of attack for it, then they're going to be aggressive. The Braves have just shown that they are an aggressive swinging ball club, and that's one of the reasons why they hit the ball so hard is they go up there looking for their pitch and they drive it somewhere. So as we were coming into this series, I saw MLB actually put out this stat uh, on the MLB official Twitter. The Braves entered the weekend with the most balls put in play 110 miles an hour or harder, 101 of those. They added throughout the Colorado series, let me just go ahead and tell you that. They hit the ball hard a lot. They hit a whole bunch of home runs. But no other team in baseball entered the weekend with more than 50 balls put in play at 110 miles an hour or harder. So this is kind of in the stat cast vein of things. If the Braves are hitting the ball that hard, more than twice as much as any other team in baseball, you can pretty much underscore a reason for their success is, and in doing so, you do things like score more runs than any other team in the National League, which the Braves now have the distinction of. And while their offense has been, and every offense is going to go through some you know, highs and lows, it ebbs and flows or whatever you want to call it, and it's not just you know, your offense, I mean, your pitching staff is going to go through this. Injury can contribute to it, of course. Bullpens go through times where, hey, we just can't seem to get the outs we need to, hey, everybody seems to be clicking all of a sudden. And that is something that seems to be kind of coming into focus a little bit more for this Braves club as well. But just overall, on this offense, if you continue to do what this lineup was designed to do, and then you start looking one through nine, and trying to find, if you're the opposing pitcher, I mean, basically, I've talked to a couple of Braves over the course of the week. I mean, all you're going to do is lose sleep if you're the opposing pitcher, if you start thinking about, well, where am I going to get the outs? All right, well, let's start at the top. you got Ron Lacuna Jr. on pace for 34 home runs, an MVP season, getting on base at a ridiculous clip in the first inning. I think he's on basing over a 500 uh, on the season. That's an absurd number, a slow-pitch softball number, uh, but that's what Ron Lacuna Jr. is in the first inning. He's basically a cheat code. Then you got Ozzie Albies now batting second. He's on pace for a 40-homer season himself. He's leading the National League in RBI. I actually sold him one short earlier. He took the lead over on Sunday from Matt Olson. So what numbers 1-2 in the league and runs batted in. Shouldn't surprise you when you got Ronald Lacuna Jr. on base that much. Ozzie Albies has 51. Matt Olson has 50. Austin Riley, I don't think, has caught the hot streak yet that he is going to catch. He's kind of righted the ship a bit but still not back to the level that I think we expect to see him at. He's only on pace for, I think, a 25-home run season by Austin Riley standards. That's low. But when you look through the whole lineup, you've got multiple guys that are looking at the possibility of a 20-plus home run season. 
Uh, let me just go ahead and run down the list for you. Sean Murphy's on pace for nearly 30 home runs this year. Ozzie Albies, as I mentioned, on pace for over 35, maybe 40 home runs. Matt Olson's on pace for 45 home runs. Austin Riley on pace for 25. Eddie Rosario and Marcelo Zuna are on a 30-home run pace as well, with Rosario with two more home runs on Sunday, now has 13 on the year. He's got eight home runs this month. He's homered in four consecutive games. So the reports of Eddie Rosario's demise have been greatly exaggerated because he is back in a big-time way. And if you wondered why the Braves were kind of sticking with him and looking for it, you just feel like Eddie is a guy that you know, he may not get all the accolades of some of the other hitters in your lineup, whether it be Acuna or Olsen or Riley or Albies, whoever it may be. But he's just a guy that goes out there and finds the big moments and gives you those highlights. And he's done that quite a few times. I mean, that playoff run, you may have felt like that's the best it's ever going to get, and it may be the best that it ever gets. But if he can do something similar to that a few times during the year to help carry your club and put you over the top and make this lineup that much more dangerous, I'm just here to tell you, look out. How about Michael Harris with a five-hit game on Father's Day? He has been absolutely scorching over the last 10 days. And I've had, again, a lot of people asking, I mean, how long is it going to go with Harris not getting the results? But once he started and got back from the injured list stint that he had, about three, three and a half weeks with a bad back, and then immediately comes back and you know kind of wrenches his knee down in Miami, it just didn't seem like he was comfortable yet. But once that knee brace came off and he continued to just do that work before the game, he showed up at 3 p.m. The Braves take BP at 4.30, just in case you're wondering, for a 7.20 home game. Well, you show up at about 3, 3.30, Michael Harris was out on the field hitting early. You can find Austin Riley out there. You can find Marcelo Zuna out there. All these guys, they're not afraid of doing the work, and the work was happening. The results started to show themselves when you started seeing more gap-to-gap, and particularly more pitches going to the left side from Michael Harris the second because he is a great hitter when he is hitting it to all fields, and that might seem like a pretty obvious statement, but that's something that wasn't happening over the first couple of weeks before he got hurt, and then the next three to four weeks after he came off the injured list, the results weren't there. But the results have started to show. He got real hot against the Mets at a go-ahead home run that helped win one of those games. He had a nice game, a 4-for-4 game in the doubleheader in Game 1 on Wednesday. So he's starting to stack up some multi-hit games, starting to look a little bit more like that 2022 Rookie of the Year. I mean, he's running them down in center field. There aren't too many better center fielders in baseball, and there's not a long list I can think of right now on the spot than Michael Harris II. So you knew you were going to be getting that, but I know everybody wanted to see the offense start to even out again. Well, Michael Harris showed up with the offense in a big-time way here over the last couple of weeks. It wasn't too long ago. I believe he was down to 160, if I'm not mistaken, about 10 or 12 days ago. Well, he's pushing 250 now, and a five-hit game will certainly help you out. In addition to that, if you look at what Travis Darno is doing, he's starting to heat up behind the plate. You put him with Sean Murphy, who, of course, you know, got the hamstring issue that cropped up on him on Saturday. He hasn't landed on the injured list yet. We'll kind of see how the Braves want to play that, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later. But behind the plate, the Braves are getting great production from their catchers, who have combined now for 16 home runs on the season. And then when Eddie Rosario is not playing left field, you got this guy Kevin Pillar, who's popped six home runs himself, has driven in some important runs in a few games for the Braves, and he plays a pretty solid left field for you. So you've got that going on. And then, as I mentioned, with Marcelo Zuna, the uh, resurgence that we've seen from him since May the 1st, you can throw that on the list. And Orlando Arcia, well... All he's doing is hitting 341 with half a dozen home runs, and he missed nearly a month thanks to a microfracture in his wrist. So I run through all of that, and you can't do it quickly anymore. It's not just, well, these couple of guys are hot, and you need these three or four guys to kind of figure it out. At some point, they will. This is a lineup one through nine that I don't think that the Braves have ever had a lineup this good. And I'm thinking about the 2003 club. I'm thinking about a handful of those 90s teams, I mean, particularly the 98 club. You know, put the country song off to the side, but that club was very good, offensively speaking. 
2019 had a pretty good offensive club. Uh, and then at times you would start to see it come together. I mean, 2021, they didn't have Ronald Acuna Jr., but Jorge Soler came over and he raked. And then Eddie Rosario came off the injured list and he raked. And you had Freddie Freeman and you had Austin Riley having his breakout season. I mean, there were a lot of things that were going right that particular year. Of course, Ozzie Albies in the middle of that, Travis Darno. Uh, a lot of good things that were happening at that time. But this particular version of this offense, the 2023 vintage, we may be talking about this one for a while because they're on pace to shatter the team home run record. Uh, and they're on pace to have, I believe, seven guys hit 20 home runs. That's pretty good, too. Um, I'm going to do a lot of research on some of this just so I can be ahead of the trend because these don't feel like things that might happen. They feel like things that are going to happen if this club continues to play the way that it has and is able to remain healthy. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Ron Lacuna Jr. because I feel like every show we should have a segment called What did Ron Lacuna Jr. do this week that no Brave has ever done before? Well, if you tuned into that players-only broadcast against the Mets, Chipper Jones made a statement that Ronald Acuna Jr. is the most talented player to ever put on a Braves uniform. If we want to talk about the 152 years of franchise history that that covers and the numerous Hall of Famers, Chipper included, that that covers, that is quite a statement. But when you start to unpack, really, talent-wise, every level of how you can affect the game, how many guys are able to put together the five tools the way that Ronald Acuna Jr. is, maybe you're able to do it for a couple of years. You know, Maybe he's not going to steal... 30, 40, 50, 60 bases every year of his career. That's a given. We understand how that works. Uh, Mike Trout doesn't run quite the same way he used to. Bonds, that was a different story. But Ron Lacuna Jr. is doing things, and at the age of 25, that we just need to step back and truly appreciate. A couple of nights ago, as he got to his 15th home run and stole his 30th base in game number 70 of the season, nobody had ever done that before. 15 homers and 30 steals. You start to do the math at game number 70. You're looking at 36 home runs, I believe, and over 70 stolen bases. Nobody has ever done more than 30 homers and 50 steals in a season. We've talked about that quite a few times here. But I was looking for, through 70 games, what have some other guys done? Has anybody done something more impressive than 15 homers and 30 steals? And, yep, uh, they have. And that guy's name is Eric Davis, who was one of the only two players who has done 30-plus homers and 50 steals in a season. He did that in 1987. And at 70 games played for the Reds, he had 26 homers and 33 steals. He was almost a 30-30. He got to 30-30, as a matter of fact, in the 90th game that he played that year. Just absolutely absurd. If he hadn't missed 33 games, we might be talking about baseball's only 50-50 player because that's how good he was. But when you are able to only find one other example that remotely starts to resemble what Ronald Acuna Jr. might do in a season, a one or two, and the names are Eric Davis in his prime, which again was just bonkers, Barry Bonds, in his running and homering prime, and Mike Trout, who had a 30-plus homer, 49 stolen base year in his rookie year, when he could have won the MVP, but Miguel Cabrera had a triple crown, you just start to marvel at what exactly it is that Ronald Acuna Jr. is doing. So is he 30-60, 30-70, 40-40, 40-60? We'll find out. He's going to have to go on a little bit of a home run, you know, run to get that pace up and going where it might make you feel like 40 is inevitable. But this 30-50 thing feels like it's doable. And that is not something that you walk into many seasons thinking about as doable. I asked Brian Snitker a little bit about, it doesn't surprise you that Ronald Acuna Jr. has the speed to run. But what Snit did say about it was he chooses his spots. His success rate is high. And there's really just no limit on how many opportunities he may get. The Braves aren't trying to slow him down. So uh, we'll see exactly how that plays out overall. But a lot of good things that happened for the Braves this week. But the continued dominance and MVP season of Ronald Acuna Jr., easily. One of the things that we love to monitor each and every single week. 
Meanwhile, the Braves and Rockies wrapped up their series on Sunday as the Atlanta club grabbed a sweep over Colorado. But a couple of days ago, I had a chance to catch up with our old friend Kelsey Winger to talk about both of these teams, her time in Atlanta, and what else is on the horizon for her. You'll hear our chat. Our conversation is next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley as we continue here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Take a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Well, we are here at Truist Park for a series against the Colorado Rockies, which gives us a nice added bonus because we get to see a familiar face, a great friend from Braves years past, but now with the Colorado Rockies, Kelsey Wingert is here. And we have had, I think, an interesting series thus far between a Braves team and a Rockies team that might be in two different places, but it is always great to catch up with you. Yeah, it's it's so nice to be back. It's so cool walking around the ballpark. It's like everywhere you turn, um, there's a familiar face, whether it's somebody from the media or coaching staff or PR or the players or security or any of the ushers. Um, it's always sweet coming back here. And I still live out here, so it's still home. Yeah, and there's really no place like home. And I know you've had an opportunity to catch up with a lot of folks, both on the media side, the player side, coaches. I mean, yeah. there are an awful lot of familiar faces. What are some of the, I guess, great memories that you have of your time with the Atlanta Braves? Because you got to hear at kind of a perfect time where the Braves went from a club that maybe didn't really know where it was going to yeah. a club that was climbing to some pretty incredible highs. That's what Franco Garcia and I were just talking down on the field. My first year was 2016, final year at Turner Field. And um, I think the coolest Thing about my time here was I, f- I felt like I kind of grew with the team. Uh, I came up with the team while a lot of these young stars that we're seeing now who are solidified big leaguers were, were coming up and learning the game as well. But I mean, I just think back to 2018 and what a magical year that was and, and clinching that night. Um, I remember obviously the the locker room post game, obviously Ronald Acuna's home run. Um, there's just there are so many sweet moments here, but I think the coolest part was being a part of them as they learned and they grew and, and in those dog days and then finally seeing those guys start to win, mm-hmm. start to win the division where now they've done for, what, five years yeah. straight. So it's it was special to see the behind-the-scenes work really flourish into you know what we're seeing now. Yeah, it's fun to watch a club kind of come together because you have the names and the faces. They'll change throughout the course of even a season. I mean, in spring training, you come in, you got 70 guys trying to figure out who the 25 or 26 now is going to be that's going to make up this club. The Braves had a lot more questions when you started. Now they have a pretty normal lineup, a normal pitching rotation. A lot of expectation has already been set. As you watch some of these guys come up, one in particular, because now I can ask you from the outside of Atlanta perspective, do we appreciate the greatness of Ronald Acuna Jr.? Or does the world of baseball maybe see him in a different light? Because over a million all-star votes this year, obviously the numbers speak for themselves. I think we're watching a a generational talent. And in Atlanta, I don't know that he's taken for granted, but I just kind of wonder, does the rest of baseball see and react to the things that he does the same way? Yeah, I think the baseball world knows that he's a generational talent. I think just him coming back from the injury, people might have almost forgotten how good he was because they didn't see him for so long. I think by the end of this year from the outside, I mean, I mean, I follow the stats that you put out. I screenshotted something to do a report on. Um, we are showing about what he's on pace to do. And I think when you get to the end of this year mm-hmm. and people see that he's maintained it all year, which I fully expect him to do, um, then the whole world's going to remember who Ronald Acuna Jr. is. But I think the fact that he was out for so long with the injury, 
and then the Braves were still winning the World Series, doing the things that they were doing without him. Um, but I think now that people are reminded mm-hmm. of how good he is, it's not nobody's overlooking it. But I think at the end of this year, more people outside of Atlanta, outside of the Southeast, are really going to remember and realize that he's going to be one of the greatest Braves we've ever seen and maybe one of the greatest players we've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, you got Chipper Jones on a broadcast just last week saying that Ronald Acuna may be the most talented player or is the most talented player to ever put on a Braves uniform. And as you do flash back into 2021, I think it's such an interesting snapshot of where Ronald was at that time. He was on an MVP track. When he went down, a lot of people would have thought, okay, season's over, let's go ahead, fold it up, trade off a couple of pieces, reload and come in next year. Instead, Alex Anthopoulos made oh, I don't know, three, four different trades to try to overcome losing one player, which should tell you an awful lot Mm -hmm. about Ronald Acuna Jr. But while he was sitting out, I don't know that the Braves are in a place where they could have done any buying were it not for how well Ronald was playing before that. So his effect and his contribution to that World Series team, I know it wasn't the most fun for him to sit and watch it, but you know that that has to be reinvigorating him to be a part of that, to be on the field, to have those moments. Because I don't know if I've seen too many other players that play with the unabashed passion and and just almost excitement that exudes every Ronald Acuna at bat or any time the ball's hit his way. Yeah, and I'm so glad that he plays that way because I think coming back from the injury, you you got kind of nervous where is he still going to play the game the same way or is, you know, a lot of guys when you deal with an injury like that, you don't see them come back with that. They're they're scared of of doing the same injury, of, of getting hurt again. And it's been cool to see him come back and just play the way that he plays. I mean, he's still, uh, the stolen bags this year. Yeah. This, I mean, it's it's been so cool to see him just hone in to his skill set and not let that injury have any sort of mental effect on him. And we're seeing, I mean, even we were talking about on, our, on the broadcast last night, how hard he's hitting the balls. Uh, I mean, the we're talking about the exit velocity. The Braves have, what, 101 batted balls over 110 miles per hour, yeah. and Acuna has almost a quarter of them, um, how hard he hits the ball, how hard he plays the game, the speed on the base pass, the speed in the outfield, the glove in the outfield. Even yesterday, he tried to deke a guy out out there. Um, I mean, it just the way that he plays the game is so fun and exciting to watch, and I'm so glad that the injury didn't change that at all. Yeah, I think it took a little time for him to get readjusted, but now 100% healthy. We're seeing who Ronald Acuna truly is. Mm-hmm. Chatting with Kelsey Wingert here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we have the opportunity to catch up here at Truist Park. Always great to be out at a ballpark. Let me ask you a little bit about the Colorado Rockies. This is a team that I know is trying to build and get back to places it has been before, but it's been a little while for this club. How would you kind of size up coming into 2023, the pieces they're trying to put in place, and maybe some of the movers and shakers from a prospect perspective mm-hmm. or uh, maybe even some veteran guys that could kind of come back in and help this club start to get to where it wants to get. Yeah, well, the toughest thing for us this year has been the injuries. Uh, I mean, we have Chris Bryant, which I feel like a lot of people forget that the Colorado <laughs> Rockies have Chris Bryant. Um, last year, he only played in 42 games for us. He was dealing with plantar fasciitis. Uh, this year, he's dealing with a heel contusion. We don't have him in the lineup. CJ Crone is our big power hitter. He's out with a back injury, and we have no timetable for his return. Charlie Blackman, who... If the world is still not paying attention to the production that Charlie Blackman is still putting out at this stage of his career, I feel like a lot of people see him towards the back end. But since he's kind of pivoted from that everyday outfield role to more of a DH for us, uh, his 
he's the guy you want up at the plate in any moment. But all three of those guys are on the injured list, including one of our aces in Herman Marquez, Antonio Senzatella, um, essentially Brendan Rogers, who won a yeah. gold glove for us last year at second. Um, he's on the IL. He'll be out until August. Sean Bouchard, who was supposed to be a fourth outfielder for us on the IL, bunch, bunch of bullpen pieces. Um, the injuries that the Rockies have had to absorb this season, it's, it's been hard to explain and hard to see. But as you know, in baseball, when injuries happen, that presents opportunities. Yep. That's what we've seen. Ezekiel Tovar came in to this year, our rookie shortstop, uh, pegged to be the opening day shortstop. The injuries didn't affect that. Not enough people are talking about him. Uh, such a steady glove at short. The average is starting to come up. He struggled at first. Now he's sitting around 250, but you saw it in game one of the series. He had a home run. He had a single in that game. Uh, more people need to be aware of Ezekiel Tovar. More people need to be aware of Nolan Jones, uh, who we got in a trade from the Guardians this offseason for a random minor league shortstop on our end. Uh, I think Nolan Jones is going to be one of the cornerstones of this organization wow. for decades to come. Dude's a third baseman, and I'm talking to EY down on the field about the great right fielder we have. EY didn't even know that he's a corner infielder and he's out there oh, wow. in right. Um, Brenton Doyle is a great glove for us in center field. Um, so we have a lot of young guys who are coming up and not only are they getting the opportunities, but they're actually coming through in, in big moments. It's not that you see these young guys come up and they struggle and you're like, well, at least they're getting used to the speed of the game. Yeah. Like, no, these guys are coming up, getting experienced, and they're contributing with the glove and the bat. So. When you look at the Rockies, I think our focus, obviously and understandably, especially in the NL West, is on the future. Um, so right now, pitching is our biggest, our biggest ailment. Um, we have really good guys down in the lower levels uh, that are still having to work their way up. But when it comes to the bats, when it comes to this lineup, the lineup can produce even with those massive injuries that we've absorbed. Yeah, and injury does create opportunity. And you and I yeah. have both seen here at this ballpark, when youth is served for clubs, oftentimes some very good things can happen. For the Rockies, I know, is from following the club for a long time from afar, pitching is the one challenge for that yeah. team because Coors Field is a totally different monster than a lot of other places, humidor or not. Now, we talked a little bit about youth, but I want to talk about experience because you had the opportunity to cover a Braves team with a great manager and Brian Snitker, a great leader, I know Bud Black is the manager of the Colorado Rockies. Rumor had it that he was one of the finalists to be the manager of the Braves when Snit got the full-time job. So I guess it's kind of cool to maybe see different, I don't know, um, iterations of yeah. the manager multiverse here because yeah. you got to obviously cover Snit for quite some time and now get to know Bud Black because that kind of veteran leadership and experience means an awful lot to a club that is trying to rise to you know, levels that maybe it has not risen to before or in quite some time. Yeah, and the thing that makes Bud unique, obviously, well, first of all, he was a pitcher. So the way that he's able to work with our young pitchers and everything has been really good. But, man, I mean, it's obviously been a rough series for the Rockies. You look at the Braves' record, you reverse it, that's the Rockies' record. But Bud, every single day, is coming in with a positive attitude, that stems down into the entire clubhouse. Uh, and not only that, but he he's a player's manager, like Snit. The players love playing for him. Uh, he's on the top step screaming and cheering for his guys, almost in a way that you don't see managers um, interacting in games. Uh, and he's just, he has been such a, a steady man to have in that role which you really need when you're dealing with the roller coaster and the ups and downs of 
a really rough season that the Rockies are having. But yeah, I mean, Brian Snicker, one of my favorite guys in baseball, being able to be here for his first year when he took over in 2016 and then working with Bud Black, who's one of the other best guys in baseball. I've been really fortunate uh, just to be around because you deal with the managers every day, right? We're in there in the dugout asking them the same questions Mm -hmm. every single day and uh, just two great guys to cover and, and two great guys for for the players to play for because they're both baseball lifers and they get it and they get the grind. uh, They get what these guys need. Um, So yeah, I've been really fortunate for those two to be my, to be my managers that I've been with. Yeah, A lot of teams have skewed younger and I mean, they're managers. I I reached a point in my life where they're younger, big league managers than I am. And I wasn't really sure that I'd get there. It was weird enough when (laughs) players were, you know, all younger than I am at this point. I think now that Albert Pujols is retired, but that's neither here nor there. So kind of wrapping up here, because Kelsey, I know that you've spent some time in Atlanta. You still make a home in the metro Atlanta area. Let everybody know kind of what you've been up to besides the Rockies and maybe what's on the horizon for you as you continue to work in and around this great game of baseball. Yes, this is my second year with the Rockies now. Um, I've also been working with John Boy Media, who, if you're a baseball fan, I'm sure you're familiar with their content. Um, And that's been a really fun company to work for. I had a podcast with Peter Moylan on there. So Pete and I still work together on a daily basis. But yeah, I still live here in Atlanta. We live up in up 75 in the Kennesaw area. Um, So with the Rockies job, you know, I'm doing that cross country commute. Mm -hmm. So it's usually three weeks on with the team and then I come back home for a week so it was nice today I got to drive myself yeah. to work for the very first time wow. for the very okay. first time all year got to sleep in my own bed last night um, so yeah I, I feel like people don't realize that I still I still live here Atlanta is still home um, I feel like it'll always be our home I mean we we love we love Georgia we love Atlanta so I'm still here I um, do everything that I can in baseball the Rockies has been such a great, I know I spoke to you about this, but it's been such a great landing spot and they've been so good to me and it's the best clubhouse I've ever been in. Uh, the group of guys in there, they are phenomenal. Um, so I feel very fortunate to have landed where I did, but it's always special to come back here. You know, it's always emotional yeah. uh, coming back here and and seeing faces and you know, I, I will always miss it here, but I'm so grateful that I'm finally back to doing what I love. Um, and I'm grateful to be working with John Boy and grateful to be sleeping in my own bed tonight. There you go. <laughs> well, we are really grateful to have the opportunity to spend so much time with you here at the ballpark. It is always a pleasure to see you, to talk baseball with you, and most importantly, to catch up on all the things that life have, has been throwing our way, good, bad, indifferent, whatever it is. It's kind of like the game of baseball. Yeah. We get a new one every day. So, Kelsey, thank you so much. Appreciate it, and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Grant. You're the best. When we come back here on From the Diamond, we will jump into what's going on across the rest of the world of baseball as we go around the big leagues. That comes your way next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios on Sunday as we wrap up what was a very eventful week for the Atlanta Braves. And, of course, we also like to take our look around the big leagues to see what else has been happening across the world of baseball. We're going to get to the drama in Oakland in a little while, but plenty of other things have been happening, and some of them even caught my attention, and I kept my list, and I brought it in, and we're going to talk about these stories and hopefully have a little bit of fun with some of them. Some of them, though, May not be too much fun for especially the people that had to go through it, but we'll get to that. One guy not having a lot of fun was Nationals manager Dave Martinez. And you might be thinking, well, his club is 
kind of fallen on hard times since that 2019 World Series. So I'm sure it's been challenging for Dave Martinez, and you'd be right about that. But he got uh, really, really upset, though, in a game against the Houston Astros a little bit earlier this week in which the Nationals lost in walk-off fashion by a 5-4 final score. Game, though, was tied at four in the bottom of the ninth inning, and Jake Myers grounded to C.J. Abrams, the shortstop, who fired home for the second out. Then Kbert Ruiz wanted to finish off that double play. He's going to throw down to first. Unfortunately, though, um, that did not play the way that they wanted, him to, wanted it to because the ball caromed off the helmet of Myers, went into the outfield, and Jose Abreu came around and broke the 4-4 score. And as you know, on the bottom of the ninth, if you do that, break the tie, that is, you win the baseball game. But Dave Martinez took it to a level that I don't know that I've seen or even heard of a manager ever taking it to. He went in in the time that it took from the final, well, not final out, but from the final play until reporters were allowed to come in his office and speak with him after this game. He printed a photo of where Myers was relative to the baseline heading down to first base. And I'll tell you, if you know the rule, there's a lane that the runner's supposed to stay in. And if you get on the left-hand side of that and the throw hits you, you are by rights out because you were out of the baseline. That's why that lane is there. Martinez has a really great case, but the umpires, though, uh, they did not side with him with that. And that led to a tirade that included a visual aid and these words from Martinez. And this is a live televised interview after the Nationals lost to the Astros. Take a listen to this. There it is, right there. Take a good look at it. Is that on the line? I don't think so. I'm over this play. Seriously. They need to fix the rule. This is what the umpires see that he's running down the line. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. Fix it. We lost the game and he had nothing to say about it because he can't make the right call. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah, no, I would say brutal is probably a pretty good way to describe that. And he told reporters he was given no explanation over the ruling, um, but obviously that's not going to change what happened. Whether you get the explanation or not, the 5-4 score did not change. And uh, Martinez went on to say, I can do nothing about the umpires, but as you mentioned, uh, you need to take a look at that and realize that they screwed the play up, and that's all I'm going to say about it. That's the end of that quote, which I partially paraphrased, but you get the point. He was a little bit hot about it, and on Wednesday night, uh, that was something that boiled over for the Washington Nationals in what has been a little bit better season than maybe some people expected, but nothing's going to take the edge off of losing a game the way that the Nationals lost it on that particular night. Now we go from losing in walk-off fashion in a way that you don't want to lose to a guy that helped a team not only win a game in walk-off fashion, but also win a World Series. Uh, the Cardinals and their 2011 World Series victory was in large part due to the MVP of that series, and that was David Freeze, their third baseman. Now, he retired not too terribly long ago. He's been out of baseball for a few years now, but as you might imagine, for anybody that helps you win a World Series in that fashion and plays for a number of years for your club, it might be an opportunity to induct that guy into your team's Hall of Fame. Not Cooperstown, which you know, obviously has some mementos from the 2011 World Series that have been on display there quite a few times. But David Freeze was inducted into the or elected to, let's get that straight, the St. Louis Cardinals Team Hall of Fame. He was in the online voting for this year's class. And Freeze recently informed the team that he wanted to withdraw his candidacy. He said in a statement, I quote, this is something I've gotten an extreme amount, uh, given an extreme amount of thought to humbly, even before the voting process began I'm aware of the impact I had in helping the team bring both great memories to the city I grew up in, including the 11th championship, but this honor means more to me, Free said in a statement. Uh, again, he was the MVP of the 2011 World Series. Uh, he had three home runs in the NLCS just to get him there. He had seven RBI in the World Series against the Rangers, hit the walk-off home run in Game 6, and then went one for two and knocked in a couple runs in that Game 7. Uh, Freeze went on to say, and I continue that quote, 
I look at who was there during my tenure, and it weighs heavily on me. The Cardinals and the entire city have always had my back in every way. I'm forever grateful to be part of such an amazing organization and fan base now and in the future. I'm especially sorry to the fans that took time to cast their votes. Cardinals Nation is basically the reason why I've unfortunately waited so long for this decision and made it more of a headache for so many people. I feel strongly about my decision and understand how people might feel about this. I get it. I'll wear it. Thank you always for being there. I'm excited to be around the Cardinals as we move forward. End quote. Uh, five years in St. Louis, freeze hit 286. Clearly, the postseason resume speaks for itself. Uh, the Cardinals, for their part, said in a statement, Although we are disappointed that David has declined to be inducted into our Hall of Fame, we respect his decision and look forward to celebrating his great Cardinals career in other ways moving forward. Uh, that was from Cardinals President Bill DeWitt III, who went on to say Freeze is always welcome at Bush Stadium. I mean, I think that you play your career, and you do it for a lot of different reasons. One of them, obviously, you, you do it because it's a dream if you're a professional athlete. I don't think we have to stray too far from the narrative to figure that out. But when you do accomplish these things, obviously, you want to share in those with your teammates, with the fan base, uh, with a region that is uh, you know very hungry for winning baseball that they are most certainly not getting this year, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. But I've just never heard of a player declining to be elected into his team's Hall of Fame, at least if if there has been one. I just haven't heard of one uh, altogether too recently or very often in this case. And uh, for David Fries, obviously a, a very personal decision for him there, maybe just not feeling like that is the honor that should be bestowed upon him for whatever reason. I mean, and that goes far beyond your garden variety humility over your play versus other Hall of Famers that were on the 2011 Cardinals, including Albert Pujols and other great all-stars like Yadier Molina, Adam Wainwright. I mean, the list goes on. It was a very good Cardinals team, but Freeze is a big reason why they won that World Series. But an interesting decision to not be inducted into the club's Hall of Fame. Meanwhile, Shohei Otani continues to do Shohei Otani things, which we like to talk about on the show quite a bit. Hit his 24th home run of the year on Sunday. That leads all of Major League Baseball. And as you might have heard a time or two, he also does some pitching. Uh, so... As Otani is just on a real hot streak at the plate, 150th career home run he hit on Saturday, another on Sunday. He gives him nine home runs this month. That is one more than noted Braves slugger Eddie Rosario, who has eight home runs in the month of June. Those are your major league home run leaders for the month so far. That's a pretty good company for Mr. Rosario. But getting back to Otani, he also leads all qualified starting pitchers in baseball in opponents' batting average. No pitcher since the ERA became a stat, I guess, back in 1913, uh, since all this stuff was being tracked in this way, has had the most home runs in baseball and also the lowest batting average against as far as a starting pitcher is concerned. One guy came close. You might have heard of him, Babe Ruth, in 1918 as he was wrapping up his career on the mound. He was first in home runs, fifth in opponent's batting average. He was a pretty good pitcher. He was an even better hitter. But that's the company that we keep talking about for Shohei Otani. It's, have you ever seen this in your lifetime? The answer is no. Has anybody ever done this before? The answer is always, well, maybe Babe Ruth. And in this case, again, maybe Babe Ruth. Uh, Sarah Langs of MLB and Elias Sports uh, pulled up those great statistics, and it just underscores again just how incredible Shohei Otani is. Sticking with the American League West, there was something that uh, caught my eye because it's just interesting, and you don't see it happen too terribly often anymore. Um, uh, I'm not going to call it a delay of game, but it was certainly a delay that we have become – uh, used to not seeing anymore, and that is how much time it takes between pitches. And clearly, I don't need to explain to you the pitch clock rules at this point. You know them if you've been watching baseball, and they have worked. They have, have cleared 25 to 30 minutes off of game times on average. I don't know the exact number right now, but it's a lot. Uh, but the batter 
has to be in the box of the 15 and 20 second intervals, has to be facing the pitcher, alert to the pitcher at eight seconds. We've played some of the times in which they're not on the show. But you also get one timeout during a plate appearance. And Jose Caballero, who is the second baseman for the Seattle Mariners, he took his timeout a couple of nights ago against the White Sox, and he took it very, very seriously. And I didn't alter this in any way, shape, or form. It's a long clip because it was a long timeout. Just take a listen. This is in that inning, the second inning, it could score. Happened twice last night. He looks at strike two. The Mariners left 11 men on, two for 15 runners in scoring position. They want to turn that around ASAP. Abby calls time. Series wraps tomorrow. Bryce Miller against Lance Lynn. You can see a lot of fastballs from those two guys. Next time Mariners see the White Sox point this is an extended timeout for Caballero. See the next time you see the White Sox will be a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday affair in late August, August 21, 22, 23. And Giolito is a noticeably upset as Caballero is doing just about everything. <laughs> it's like he's like, like, really, really, dude. I mean, this is like a three or four phase timeout for Caballero. In the old days, this would have got one in your ear. The great Bob Lanier tried to do that to my father-in-law who was a basketball ref. Bob had a size 22 shoe. He tied one. And then he went to tie the second one and my father-in-law said uh, no. And the game proceeded at St. Bonaventure many moons ago. One and two. That was a pitch that came 84 seconds after timeout was called. I have not seen a batter take more than 15, 20-ish seconds of extra time upon calling a timeout. I mean, and this doesn't have anything to do with did you foul a ball off your foot? Did anybody get injured? Was there a foul tip off the catcher or the umpire? None of the things that would normally stop play that the pitch clock is not designed to, you know, cut those times out. Everybody understands how the game is played and when a little bit of a timeout is needed. But 84 seconds. And if you remember, uh, it was Major League Two when Roger Dorn is called upon to pinch hit just to take one in the ribs and get down to first base because they need a base runner. And he gets hit with a pitch, heads down to first base, and Jake Taylor, manager at that time, says, all right, we're sending in the pinch runner. Roger Dorn waves it off. And then both he and the pinch runner go through an incredible display of calisthenics at first base. That was what Caballero was doing, marching around home plate. I mean, he did everything short of jumping jacks before getting back in the box. And as they pointed out on the broadcast there, sometimes in older school venues, you might have gotten one up and in uh, for that little display. But Lucas Giolito chose to throw one towards the strike zone, and the game went on without incident. But that just... The pitch clock doesn't allow us to really see things like this. It wouldn't have been that weird, I don't think, that long ago. I mean, maybe a minute and 20 seconds is pushing it. But for the most part, if a batter took a timeout and took a stroll, it wasn't anything weird. It gave you time as a broadcaster to do things like reads, to mention the upcoming schedule, as these broadcasters certainly did, to you know, to plug tomorrow's pitching matchup, maybe the start of your broadcast time. You had all these things that you're at the ready to kill the time, and I've done it. And I did it in the minor leagues when I didn't have a team of people to hand me notes about things I could read. Well, Caballero was kicking it old school. And by old school, I mean 2022, before the pitch clock existed. I don't have a whole lot of time left in this segment, but I do have a couple of other stories I want to get to, so I'm going to run the hurry-up offense here. We talked about the Cardinals a little bit earlier, and it's been a rough season for them, to say the least. Nobody expected them to take the kind of step back that they have taken this season. 
one of the worst teams in all of baseball, and their all-star third baseman, Nolan Arenado, was asked about what exactly is it that's had you guys going through this slump. And at this point, when we're talking about game number 70, 72, whatever it is of the season for them as well, it's more than just a slump. We're going on half a season's worth of sample size. Here's what Nolan Arenado had to say about the way the Cardinals are playing lately. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, I don't even know if you would call it a stretch anymore, right? I mean, it's just bad baseball. We've been playing bad baseball for a while now. So um, do I think we could play better baseball with the players we have in here? Sure. But that, that remains to be seen, and we're already three months in. Three months in, and the Cardinals at 29-43 and 43 through 72 games is the cellar dweller of the National League Central. Just one game ahead in the overall National League standings of the Washington Nationals and the Colorado Rockies, who we just saw here in Atlanta get absolutely blasted by the Braves. Well, the Braves swept the Cardinals earlier this year as well, and we may have thought, okay, wow, you got one over on the Cardinals early. That's good because you don't want to see them when they get hot. Well, they haven't gotten hot. It just hasn't happened, save about a 10- or 12-game stretch after all of that commotion about what was going on with Wilson Contreras behind the plate or not behind the plate or what have you. But Missouri's two Major League Baseball teams have the worst records in each of their league or did heading into the weekend because it's not just the 29-43 and 43 St. Louis Cardinals. It's also the 19-52 and 52 Kansas City Royals. They have surpassed the Oakland Athletics or had heading into the weekend for worst record in the American League. The Athletics just crept in front of them just then. Uh, Drew Smith of the New York Mets was suspended for 10 games, banned for sticky stuff is what we call it these days, umpires checking him over. I'm going to let him explain it because he seemed to be quite confused as to how he got thrown out of this game, and he's not the first Mets pitcher that's gone through this. Here's Drew Smith. How sticky were your hands? I don't think they were sticky. Yeah. I mean, obviously they do. Um, I'm sure they're going to come out with a, with a statement saying something similar to Max's, like stickiest hands ever or whatnot, but... Um, my hands were sticky, and I had everybody check them as I was coming off the field. I don't know if that was caught on camera. Um, the MLB guy in the in the tunnel, I kind of forced him to feel my hands as I walked in. I just grabbed him like this and pulled, and he actually laughed and said there was nothing there. So uh, I don't really know what else to do. That is weird audio following a weird situation. I hope a lawsuit doesn't come from that poor MLB official who was grabbed and cajoled to be involved in this. But a 10-game suspension, no laughing matter for Drew Smith. That's what Major League Baseball handed him. He's the fifth pitcher this season and the second for the New York Mets is obviously Max Scherzer, who we heard from a few weeks ago. He was not too happy about this. You could hear Drew Smith wasn't too happy about this, but I guess we'll see how umpires continue to police this. There seems to be very little, if any, room for error here, and this is what we're dealing with in the year 2023. 84-second timeouts and sticky stuff all on the table. That'll wrap things up for our trip around the big leagues on this week's edition of the show. But we do have one more story from at-large in Major League Baseball, and it comes to us from Oakland, where the Athletics had a reverse boycott at their stadium at the Coliseum. That's what Oakland fans were doing uh, to have their voice heard with the club set to move to Las Vegas. We'll dive into all of that. We'll hear from Commissioner Manfred and get a fan accounting of what the reverse boycott was all about. And it will come your way next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios as we continue our look around the big leagues for one of the biggest stories of the 2023 season. 
We like to have a lot of fun on the show and kind of take you to all of the different things that are happening with the other 29 teams. We focus mostly on the Braves, but this story coming out of Oakland has been one of the least fun stories of this season, and there's really no two ways about it. When you see the fans of a major league club from the news this week getting set to lose their major league franchise to another city. Now, there have been clubs that in our lifetime have moved. Most recently, the Montreal Expos becoming the Washington Nationals. That was also the cause of a lot of consternation, particularly because the league took over ownership of the Expos. But this ownership situation happening in Oakland and the saga that it's taken to get to this point has been one that it has to leave a bad taste in your mouth as a baseball fan. And most certainly for Oakland Athletics fans, they are feeling jilted and they are feeling like their team has been ripped away from them because, in fact, in many ways, it has been. John Fisher is the owner of the Oakland Athletics, and he is looking to move his club to Las Vegas. And that took a major step forward this week as the money needed for that move was approved by local government in Las Vegas, which paves the way for the Athletics to become the Las Vegas Athletics as soon as 2027. There are still obviously many things that are going to have to happen, including and beginning with the rest of the owners in baseball voting to ratify this move. That, though, is expected to happen when they meet within the next few weeks. So that will be the next big step. And barring that, at least from everything I've read and everything that's been reported, it would take some kind of crazy Hail Mary to keep the athletics in Oakland. But this has become a mudslinging situation between the league, between obviously Oakland's ownership and the fans feeling like they have been misled by John Fisher and his ownership group in terms of bargaining in good faith to have a ballpark in Oakland. Then you have the local Oakland government also saying, hey, we made attempts to have this done, but we never could really get it to seriously get across the finish line or gain significant steam because ownership didn't really seem to be interested in sitting down and bargaining in good faith to get a deal done for a new ballpark in the Oakland and Bay Area. Now, nobody questions the fact that the Coliseum is falling apart. And the Coliseum is one of the big points that people look to and say, well, maybe because it's empty all the time, nobody really cares about the Oakland Athletics anymore. That could not be further from the truth. In fact, Oakland fans cared so much this week that they went ahead and gathered to voice their displeasure in what they call the reverse boycott. Now, this happened on Tuesday night at the Coliseum. A crowd of nearly 25,000 was on hand, and while that may not sound like much, when you consider just how bad the Oakland Athletics have been and the fact that this club has been trending in this direction for quite some time, particularly under Fisher's ownership, trading away all-stars and star players, but never really rebuilding and replenishing a winner and never really investing in the payroll, in the stadium, into all the things that would make the fans feel like they are actually getting something for their fandom. So what we have here is a very sad situation where a team is getting set to relocate. And owner John Fisher, who has been trying to move the athletics to Las Vegas, has been able to get that, no pun intended, greenlit by the Nevada State Senate here this week. And they want to get out of Oakland by the time that their lease expires in 2024. Fans obviously feel like the team has quit on them. Not the guys on the field, not the Oakland Athletics roster, but the ownership group of this team has quit on them. So the fans decided to organize a boycott. In fact, it was over 27,000 fans. I sold them a little bit short here a moment ago in a game against the Tampa Bay Rays on Tuesday. And it was the same day that the Nevada State Senate approved that new ballpark money that the Athletics have been seeking, which was going to be that big step towards getting the club to move. This reverse boycott was incredible. Largest crowd of the year. And they pulled out all the stops. They had chants. They had moments of silence coming back from innings. Of course, sell the team was really their main focus and the main battle cry for that night. In fact, they had fans wearing green shirts that said sell on them 
speckled across the ballpark. It was quite a sight to behold. Now, while this may have gotten a lot of attention across the world of baseball, Commissioner Rob Manfred, who has already gotten himself in the middle of this back and forth between the city of Oakland, the A's ownership group, and of course the Las Vegas move is on his desk. That's under his watch as well. Well, he was asked exactly what he thought about this reverse boycott, and here's what he had to say. Did you watch the Rays-A's game on Tuesday when the fans came out for the reverse boycott? I was actually at a dinner with the owners. Did you did you read the coverage? I did. Did you see any of the, what I, I saw the impression of that? You know, I mean, it, it was great. Uh, I, it's great to see what is this year, you know, almost an average Major League Baseball crowd in the facility for one night. That's a great thing. I don't know if you can find a more backhanded remark to make. And as the commissioner of baseball, and this has gone on for a while, a lot of people have a lot of questions about the decorum or the bedside manner of Rob Manfred. Just file this as another example for that. But putting the commissioner's office and many of the gripes that people have about that aside and focusing in on Oakland, I wanted to bring in somebody who was actually at the reverse boycott at the Oakland Coliseum this week. Her name is Amber Dalsky. We've been longtime friends. And while she is a Braves fan at heart, she also lives in the Bay Area and has adopted the Oakland Athletics as a club to follow and a club that's given her an awful lot of great memories over the years. Let me just start by asking clearly the feeling around Oakland and the Bay Area and beyond, really. I mean, it's a, it's a regional thing, of course, as well. To go into a night at the Coliseum, unlike pretty much any other night that we've ever seen or heard about even in any sport, to be honest, knowing what we do about Oakland's proposed move to Las Vegas and the steps that they continue to take towards that. What was it like to show up at the Coliseum and what was the overall mood like as more fans than we have normally seen, at least in 2023, wanted to make their voice heard on a very big stage to get really the world of baseball to take a look at what is going on in Oakland. Didn't really know what to expect going in. This was an event that I had seen kind of rumblings about the last couple months. Sounded like fun. Ace fans like to have fun. They like to plan events, highly organized. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I talked to my kids and I was like, do you guys want to go to this? And they were like, of course. So we had tentatively planned to go and then the Las Vegas announcement happened. So I, I don't know what exactly the date was when that happened like a month or so ago. And I was like, well, what, like, what does this do for the boycott? What does this do for the reverse boycott? And so some people completely deflated, like not going to give John Fisher any more of my money. What's the point it's over. And so it lost a lot of steam, but in the last couple of weeks, you started really seeing people post about it. A huge shout out to the Oakland 68s. They really took the reins. They have connections, local connections with Oaklandish, which is a clothing company and Old Con Brewing. Um, they organized this fan funded giveaway, first ever fan funded giveaway. Their goal was to raise $25,000. I think they raised over like $28,000. They were able to give away 7,000 cell shirts. I'm wearing one right now. And then I started to see um, there's a fan on Twitter tracking the ticket sales and you really started to see it pick up momentum over the last week. And it's like, okay, we're maybe going to get 20,000 people. Okay. Uh, I should probably get my tickets. By the time I bought my tickets over the weekend, I had to sit in the upper level of 149 because it was wow. selling out. And so getting in, I have never seen just, I've never seen the parking lot like that before. I've been there for 
you know, wild card runs and I've never seen the parking lot with so many people, especially on a Tuesday afternoon, mm-hmm. tailgating and everyone was wearing the cell shirts. And if they didn't get a cell shirt, they were wearing the green. Uh, so that was really cool. And um, we got there, we went over to where the 68s were holding their tailgate party and, you know, people were chanting, people had signs, there was games, there was free food, beer. After they ran out of t-shirts to give away, they were giving away bobbleheads. Just really cool to see the fans organize in that way. Once we got into the ballpark, just the level of energy, it felt like a playoff game. People were excited to be there. People People were excited to see each other. I saw people that I haven't seen since before the pandemic. It really felt kind of like a reunion of sorts, getting to see all your old baseball friends again. People from all over the country that were flying out for the game, New York. I saw somebody from Canada that flew down for the game. There were Giants fans there that I know. Just the feeling of community, baseball community really coming together it really gave like an emotional aspect to being there. Like you felt like you were a part of something, like you were experiencing something um, that you maybe never would experience again. It's a unique experience at the very least. And as you talked about a lot of that that, and things we saw, images, videos, and all the things that social media brings us. And of course, it's got a lot of national attention from baseball reporters. The shirts that said sell on them, I mean, those are aimed directly at John Fisher, who instead of selling the team and giving it the opportunity to remain in Oakland, which I know is one possibility that many A's fans would be very happy about, whatever it takes really to get the club to stay there, does not seem to be the way that this thing has been trending for quite some time. And clearly with Major League Baseball and with the city of Las Vegas, making the funding available for the A's and the owners meetings coming up where this is expected to be a move that is ratified and barring some last ditch effort or some unforeseen circumstance, the athletics are going to be heading to the fourth city that they have called home. None have they been in longer than Oakland. And when you spend that much time in a city and any time in any sport and really any institution that you can think of, especially one that people invest so much of themselves into as we do in sports in America, I don't think that's a surprise to anybody There is a love for the Oakland Athletics that I think maybe doesn't get the kind of attention that it should because people look at attendance and they think, okay, well, people don't care about the A's in Oakland. That, though, I know from knowing you for quite some time and just from understanding kind of the infrastructure of what has gone wrong in Oakland is not factual. So as you were there in that time around that crowd, you know, wearing those shirts and clearly trying to send a message to this ownership group, what do you think is the impact of the reverse boycott? What were kind of the emotions coming out of that night? I think number one, the statement that they were making, it's that we are here. Ace fans are here. It's not that Ace fans don't exist or they've abandoned their team, but you have to, I think, really take into consideration how beaten down this fan base is. Mm-hmm. I've been following the A's closely since 2014. And just in that short amount of time, Watching the team that had six All-Stars, I think that was in 2014. Only one of them was back the next year. And that's something that just happens every year now. If you're good, if you make the All-Star team, good luck, because you're probably not going to be back next year. Then, you know, not re-signing anyone. They haven't signed a large free agent contract since Eric Chavez, and he's been retired for 10 years. So it's hard for A's fans. Like, how do you stay attached to the team? What is the team giving back to you as a fan? So there's that, 
the Coliseum, I know people like to rag on the Coliseum, but honestly, since I started going in 2014, I can't think of a more fun place to attend a baseball game. And I'm a Braves fan. I love going to Atlanta, but there's just something old school about walking into the Coliseum, knowing that like you're going to run into your friends walking around and everyone welcomed me with open arms. Those people are the most passionate fans I've ever met in my life. I don't know if people know this, but until like recently, the bleacher area was general admission. So they would have people get there and wait in line to be the first in line with their drums and their flags and everything every single game, hours before the gates even opened. And they would do that every single game so that they would get those front row seats and they'd be able to hang their banners and have their flags and have their drums then compound that with the last couple of years, how much they've raised the season ticket prices. So what's really like motivating you to be a season ticket holder, to go to the games consistently when you just feel like everything that brings you happiness, like keeps getting taken away, your favorite players, it's costing you more money, but the team's not actually doing anything to be a better ball club. It's hard and people need to understand that it's not like, Ace fans want to go to games. They want to support their team, but it's a give and take relationship also. And I think people really need to understand that and appreciate that. Yeah. And a worse product for more money is not really a good faith arrangement between an ownership group, particularly of a major sports franchise in America and a fan base that you're asking to continue to line your pockets. And unfortunately it would seem that the, Lining of the pockets is now going to go to a city in which uh, is built by losers. As a matter of fact, that's what Las Vegas is all about. That's what <laughs> built that city. So it's kind of a fascinating study, I guess, that we're looking at here as far as what Fisher, his ownership group, and all of the things that are going to be coming out of this, whether they're ill-gotten gains or otherwise. Obviously, comments by Commissioner Manfred. A confluence of events, I think is the best phrase I could probably you know throw on this because it's it's not one thing, it's many things, and it's many things all at once. But Amber, I appreciate you making some time to discuss a little bit about what that reverse boycott was like. Obviously, the feeling of A's fans and you know clearly as we've known each other for a long time and share a fandom of a team that we grew up watching and on opposite ends of the country, this is going to be an adjustment for athletics fans, but hopefully for the people that have been lifelong A's fans, they will find their way through this and find a way to continue to enjoy the sport and the team that they love. Definitely. Once again, my thanks to Amber Dolsky for making some time to join me on the show and to help get you up to speed and kind of give you a firsthand perspective, a fan account of what the reverse boycott was like in Oakland this past week. When we come back here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley, we will cover what's ahead for the Atlanta Braves as they look to get out on the road with a two-city trip beginning in Philadelphia, also a stop in Cincinnati, and we got plenty more Braves news and notes to get into as well. It comes your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Wrapping things up here on From the Diamond. We've had a couple of great hours of baseball talk and we've covered a little bit of everything from the Braves, enjoying their Father's Day quite a bit with a win over the Colorado Rockies, their fourth in a row in that series. That's called a sweep, sixth in a row overall, and that has allowed Atlanta to continue to build its lead in the National League East, or at the very least, hold off a couple of teams that are chasing them that are looking pretty good here lately as well. You've got the Marlins and you've got the Phillies on some winning streaks of late, four in a row for the Marlins. The Phillies, meanwhile, will be welcoming the Braves on Tuesday to begin a three-game series. So 
There's going to be a little bit of head-to-head action, but Philadelphia heading into Sunday, eight and a half games or eight games really behind the Atlanta Braves as they wrap up their series out in Oakland, but unable to cash in on a winning streak because the Braves decided to go on one of their own. Meanwhile, if you look a little bit further down the National League East standings, you find the New York Mets, who are now five games under 500. They did get some good news over the weekend. Pete Alonso was activated from the injured list about two weeks before he was expected to be. Remember, he got plunked during the Braves and Mets series by Charlie Morton, and they were concerned a bone bruise in his wrist was going to have him out for an extended period of time. Much better news for Alonso. Much better than three weeks, most certainly. But it's going to take a lot more than Pete Alonso to get the Mets going, that's for sure. Uh, they lost again on Sunday and have dropped seven of their last ten. They're now closer to the Washington Nationals in last place at just five and a half games off that pace. The Marlins, or excuse me, the Nationals are 18 games behind the Braves. Mets are 12 and a half back now. Uh, five and a half games away from the Nationals in last place. And again, 12 and a half games out of first place. I would not have sized up this division like this at any point this season. To see the Braves and the Mets separated by 12 and a half games, I just didn't think it was going to happen. It didn't happen at all last year. We got to 10 and a half, and we know how that played out, and it took a lot of dramatics between those two teams before the division was decided in the final week of the season. Uh, it could still be some dramatics in the National League East, but if the New York Mets want to be a part of that, they are going to have to get their season going, and they're going to have to get it going very, very soon. Braves now 46-26 and 26 with 90 games to go. They have the best record in the National League, a winning percentage of 639. They're also the only club in the National League with a run differential over 100. It's at plus 100 on the dot after scoring 14 runs against the Colorado Rockies in that 14-6 victory. 395 runs scored by the Braves. That is ahead now of the Los Angeles Dodgers at 386 runs scored as we sit here on a Sunday evening. Just kind of looking at some of the trends here in the standings, and we'll look at them a lot more as the season wears on, but now we're far beyond Memorial Day at this point. We're moving on towards July. The All-Star break is right around the corner. We know a couple, three weeks after that, we'll be talking a lot about the trade deadline, and then we're in that stretch drive when you get into August and September. And for the last couple of years, the Braves have had some pretty exciting stretch drives. Maybe they'll be able to go in with a much more commanding position than they have the last two years where they had to. They made it a lot of fun, but they had to work awfully hard to win the National League East. They'd like to win the East on their way to some big things in October, though. That's what the Braves want to be thinking about. Meanwhile, We've talked about injuries so many times this year. We had to talk about it a couple of times this week. One of them, Jesse Chavez, was a pretty scary one. He took a line drive off the left shin, kind of the inside of the knee, it looked like, against Detroit in game one of the doubleheader. It was off the bat of Miguel Cabrera, went straight back up the middle. It took Chavez's legs out from under him. He had to be helped off the field. Not carted off, but he had to be helped off the field. Still pretty sore when they came back that next day, and so the Braves decided to go ahead and put him on the 15-day injured list. I did see Jesse take part in the television broadcast on Sunday. He joined Brandon Gordon and Tom Glavin on Bally Sports. He said he's getting better every day, and hopefully in about, what, 10 or so days, the Braves will be able to welcome him back into the bullpen mix. With him down, though, the Braves made an interesting move. I just want to bring this up because I just think it's such a great story. The comeback of Ben Heller, 31-year-old righty reliever, kind of a journeyman at this point, had some big league time with the Yankees, last pitched in the major leagues in 2020. I had Tommy John surgery prior to that. He'd already made his comeback. When the Yankees cut him loose after that 2020 season, he signed with Arizona. And then he had a stress fracture in his elbow. So he had to come all the way back from that. Never pitched for the Diamondbacks, I don't believe, uh, in their system at all. Was in the twin system last year. Ended up with the Rays this year. Got traded to the Braves not long ago for international bonus pool money. And finds himself throwing two scoreless innings and striking out five batters and making his return to the major leagues against the Colorado Rockies a couple of nights ago. Just a really fun story. 
Uh, and baseball gives you a lot of those. So when somebody goes down, sometimes it opens a door for someone to reach that level again or fulfill another dream. And I'm sure for Ben Heller, part of his dream was to get back to the major leagues at some point. He had some really, really nice tweets. I invite you to check those out on social media. I retweeted some of those, just what that meant to him, but a really special moment for him. On Saturday, meanwhile, the Braves suffered another injury. We don't really know what the extent of this one's going to be just yet or whether an injured list stint will be involved. But Sean Murphy, the Braves catcher, hit a ball off the center field wall. You would have thought, all righty, there's a double to get the inning started. But he had to stop at first base because he felt a little bit of tightness in the hamstring. He left the game immediately. Braves sent him to get an MRI. That showed some irritation but did not show any real damage to that hamstring. So they have not placed him on the injured list yet. They designated Charlie Culberson for assignment, despite the fact he never got into a game with the Braves over the last month. That's an interesting little caveat and quirk of just how teams are built now with the DH. You don't have to make a whole bunch of changes, and you don't need a pinch hitter, and emergency guy is just that, is an emergency. And there weren't really any big emergencies, unfortunately, for Charlie Culberson this time around. So Chadwick Trump is now brought up to be the Braves' backup catcher, and they'll reevaluate this, I'm sure, as they roll into Philadelphia just to see how Sean Murphy is feeling and whether or not they can get him back into the mix. But speaking of Braves catchers, I got to catch up with one of them this week at the ballpark. His name is Travis Darno. Hit his 100th home run, a milestone for him as he is you know, going on, what, a decade now in the major leagues. He's been an integral part of what the Braves have done over the past few seasons and signing with his club before 2020. So I got to talk a little bit about milestones and what these Braves catchers are doing behind the scenes to help get that pitching staff ready for success each and every single day. Here's my visit with Braves catcher Travis Darno. When you come to the big leagues, you get the opportunity to fulfill that part of the dream. Now you've played for quite a while. You reach a milestone like 100 home runs. You may not spend a ton of time during the season reflecting on things like that, but kind of in the immediate aftermath and hearing a lot of people ask you about it, what's kind of been the prevailing feeling after that? Uh, pretty special, pretty special. I, I mean, In the beginning of the year in spring, there was four of us all with 97 homers, me, KP, Riley, and Ozzy, and we've been jabbing at each other basically the whole year or the whole spring to who was going to get there first. And, right. you know, I ended up being the last one. So they were all making fun of me and having a good time with it. But it's pretty special. It's really rare to get that many shoots, to get even one. And to get 100, especially as a catcher, is pretty rare. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Because a catcher, I mean, you know how demanding this position is. And I think anybody from the outside can tell how difficult it is to play on a day-in, day-out basis. So getting to that kind of milestone, playing and having some, I guess, overall you know, durability throughout your career with miles left to travel, I guess that has to feel pretty special as well. Yeah, it does. It does. It feels really special. I, at 10 years, it's, as a catcher, it's hard when you got to block all the time and run all the time everywhere, and it's pretty special. I'm still kind of blown away. Yeah. So there's a daily grind that goes with the game of baseball, and from behind the scenes, people may not know what goes into it from a planning and execution perspective. And I've asked Snit a little bit about it, and some of the other guys around the team, pitchers in particular, you guys work awfully hard behind the scenes to create game plans and to work. Could you walk me a little bit through what the daily planning is when you sit down with a pitcher, the starting pitcher, I guess, for that particular day, to create that plan to go into that game to attack that night's lineup? Well, for us, we actually have a team of guys who prep Murph and I for when we have our catchers meeting with them, which is 45 to an hour. It's not all business. Like, I would say half of it's joking around sure. and, like, pulling up funny videos and stuff but I think it's the most important part of the game honestly you can throw everyone out block everything pick everything receive everything but if you give up more runs than the other team you're going to lose so I think it's actually the least talked about and most important thing of our job so knowing on top of that what a game plan is it could all 
be completely flipped as well if the pitcher doesn't have execute that pitch and you kind of got to wing it from there on out so it's something that takes years to learn you know I, I wouldn't even say I've mastered it yet I'm still learning every single day and Sal and Eddie who've been in the game for 30 40 years a piece say that as well it's yeah. you, you always see something new so you just try to prepare for the best you can before the game and then let your eyes tell you what exactly is going on you've got a lot of pitchers that are in different stages of their career i looked this up last night i don't know if they're going to appreciate it or not but jesse chavez and charlie morton were drafted in 2002 in june four months later aj smith chavra was born yeah. and he's also on this staff so you're working with guys with all kinds of different arsenals and also different amounts of experience i'll start with somebody like aj who's coming up on the fast track for sure how beneficial do you feel it is what you murph and the entire team that kind of plans is able to help him to be ready for this challenge on the biggest stage oh very very beneficial i don't know exactly what he learned in high school or in the minors but to come up here and at 20 years old and to see guys like you said like Charlie and Jesse how they prepare for a game and they've been in it for 13 or 14 or 15 years and to see them how they prepare as a 20 year old is pretty special so you kind of know what works for them and you can kind of follow along what they do especially with game planning as well I mean it's crazy that he was born a couple months after they were drafted so you got to have them here and for the young kids it's, it's just about just living in the moment as much as you can I think when young kid, a lot of young kids come up, they feel the pressure of a lot of uh, the outside lights instead of just focusing on what's literally right in front of you. And I think Murph and I do a really good job of reminding everybody that, you know, regardless of a good pitch or bad pitch, it's about this pitch. That's what's most important. That's Braves catcher Travis Darno. Good to catch up with him. And as you can hear, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to get those pitchers ready every single day. And there are a lot of different kind of pitchers on that staff. It's crazy to think, and we haven't talked a lot about A.J. Smith-Chauver on this edition of the show, but his first couple of starts, the success that he's been able to have, when you're 20 years old, coming to the major leagues, you're going to need a little bit of support behind you to help you get acclimated, and Braves catchers and the entire team that works behind the scenes to get him ready is one of those factors. I wouldn't even call it an X factor, but it's one of those things that just it goes a long way to help set you up for success the way that you need to as a starting pitcher in the major leagues when you're just a couple of years removed from high school, so pretty crazy to think about that. Meanwhile, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of different pitchers in a lot of different phases of their career, unfortunately for some, injury comes calling, and it can take you out of the game for a while. Braves left-hander Tyler Matzik has been using this season to rehab and hopefully get himself ready to get back on the mound and, and be a full-time piece of that bullpen again in 2024. But I wanted to check in with him, see how his Tommy John surgery re recovery and rehab has been going as he is eight months removed from that surgery now here's my chat with Tyler Matzik one of the key Braves relievers and one of the most exciting seasons ever on the comeback trail looking to get back into that Atlanta bullpen first and foremost how's everything going for you in the recovery process how you feeling and kind of where are you at on that journey because I know it's a long one yeah no I feel good right now started throwing a couple weeks back I think I'm like week six or week seven of throwing um but yeah it's a long process and but I'm feeling healthy right now and I'm, I'm right on Right on track, so I'm feeling pretty good. What's the overall timetable for it? And if it's sometimes it varies, yeah. and obviously you could encounter different things along the way that could change some of that. But if uh, you're looking at a best case scenario, is uh, what what are you kind of looking at right now? Yeah, I mean it's usually about a year, maybe 14 months, and I had surgery in October. So I mean yeah. that's like the closest timeline I can give anybody. It's just kind of like you know the generic. I had surgery in October, and it usually yeah. takes 12 to 14 months. So. Um, you know, the progress I've made so far has been really good, and I feel really healthy. I've made 
some good adjustments to where you know the arm's feeling good. I'm not throwing with pain or anything, so right. I feel fantastic right now. I think it was maybe 2014, 2015. Adam Adovino went through Tommy John, and he brought a GoPro along with him mm -hmm. through the process of, I guess, from the time that he came out of the surgery to the first time he was able to pick up and throw a baseball. So for those of us, myself included, who have never been through a process like this, mentally, physically, what is that like to kind of go through the day by day, knowing that you're waiting to kind of get to that next step, and then obviously progress to getting back on the mound? Um, you know, physically, I think as athletes, we're used to being in physical pain or doing workouts and all that stuff. So I don't think it's that big of a you know difference with that. I think it was more the mental side, not being able to compete, not being able or knowing that, you know, your guys are all getting ready for a season and spring training and you're sitting there watching and you're like, dude, I can't do this for a whole nother year. Um, so it's definitely the mental side is definitely tougher. But yeah, I mean, it's not fun, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it happens. It's part of the game. And um just try and turn into a positive thing and be as good as I can be on the other side of it. Well, best of luck to Tyler Matzik as he looks to get himself back on the mound for the Atlanta Braves. So that is probably a 2024 timeline. He's going to continue to check all the boxes and get himself ready. Meanwhile, for the Braves, they're going to be hitting the road uh, for a couple of series, one that starts in Philadelphia on Tuesday at 640. It'll be the Braves and the Phillies opening up that three-game set. Then on Friday, Braves roll into Cincinnati. They will meet, a, I think, kind of an upstart Reds team that they uh, will get a good look at at Great American Ballpark, and that is a place where the ball's been known to fly. So we'll see how both the Braves and the Reds are swinging it in that series most certainly. But that will wrap things up for this edition of From the Diamond. As always, I appreciate the time of my uh, guests that I got to catch up with at the ballpark, Travis Darnot, Tyler Matzik, Kelsey Wengertz, and – uh, all of you for making some time to join me here on a Sunday and to check out the show on 92.9 The Game. And, of course, you can always check it out wherever you get your podcasts as well. Just search for From the Diamond there. That'll wrap things up this week. Look forward to catching you again next week right here. Same time, same place. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.